Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Molly Breen, CEO and co-founder of Perigee, an IoT OT security platform that's raised 6.4 million in funding. Molly, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yes. So I'm the CEO and founder of Perigee, and I founded Perigee coming out of the NSA. So that stands for National Security Agency where I was a mathematician. And it was while I was a mathematician at the NSA that I got really passionate about this type of technology that is exploding out there. They're known as IoT, think Internet of Things. That's the thermostats in your house, the Amazon Alexas and Google Homes. And then there's also this other class of devices that you'll find called operational technology, OP, like HVAC systems and MRI machines and hospitals and was working on this, you know, sort of that general internet enabled technology while at the NSA and just saw how vulnerable they are and wanted to leave the NSA and have an opportunity to build a company around securing them for companies that are adopting and using those technologies. What was it like working at the NSA? Do you tell me or would you have to kill me? No, I can I can definitely tell you. Yeah, I, I'll say I absolutely loved it. It was one of the best places, especially where I was, which was right out of college, to learn so much. You know, as, as one example, I was in this starting class of 30 or so people. And every three to four months, you would take a class together. And, you know, not only is this an opportunity to take a top secret class that isn't taught anywhere else, where they sort of instill in you the secrets of the NSA, which is really fun. It was also an opportunity where We would take walks and workshop each other's dating profiles and, you know, do a little bit of yoga on the front lawn while, you know, in between. So had a lot of fun in these early years working at the NSA. It's a really full of a ton of smart people who are so naturally curious. And that shows up both in their work, but it also just shows up in in, in the relationships that you have with others. What would you say is a big misconception that people have about what it's like to work at the NSA? So many. I think one of the big misconceptions that I had, so I was on an operational team, which essentially just means you're you're sort of doing that bread and butter, what you think of when you think of NSA. And I think the movies makes it look like something like get breaking into a network. I don't want to say breaking in, but like, you know, getting access to a network. You can do it in in a matter of moments. I I think about the show Mr. Robot or I'm sure that there's a, a ton of other movies that have these scenes where someone's like, oh, I'm in, I've got the I've decrypted the password and I'm in. It takes so much more time and resources to do that type of thing. Maybe just because pure computationally, it takes more resources. Maybe from a people perspective, it takes more resources. And that was one of the biggest eye-opening things that I saw was maybe with the movie shows, they're showing in just a fraction of the time for Hollywood's sake. But in the real world, these are things that take a lot more time and a lot more planning and a lot more thought when they're going in. Oh, so it's not like the movies? That's disappointing. Yeah, it's but it's still just as fast paced. I won't I won't take that away. It's just not quite as um as simple as maybe the movies make it look. Yeah, makes sense. I guess it would be the first time that Hollywood's not totally accurate in how they depict something. Exactly. 
Now, a couple of questions that we'd like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? When I think of the founders, the CEOs that I admire the most, I keep going back to the founders and the CEOs that I'm lucky enough to have a close personal relationship with. So I think about peers that are at similar stages as me. And I think about founders that are a little bit further ahead of me. These also happen to be other women that I get to be close to that are founders and CEOs. And I think the biggest thing, the biggest reason why I look up to them is in part because there's a lot of shared trust in these relationships and they're open with me about what they struggle with and they're open with me about what questions they're asking. And to me, not only is that one of the most strongest traits that I that I see in other people is if you're willing to admit what you don't know and if you're willing to admit where you're wrong. So there's sort of that just core element of these types of people that I like to surround myself. And then, of course, getting to watch them overcome these different challenges, often things that take not one, but you know multiple times to get through or different ways that they have to approach it is always, I always walk away from those conversations extremely energized as reminding me that you know you're not in this alone. And it's encouraging to remember to continue to be persistent at, at whatever it is that I'm working towards, even if it's not the same thing that they're working towards in their own company, in their own industry, in their own stage. And what about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you as a founder? Do I have to give a book or can I say like a TV show or, you know, a, a, a musical artist or something else? Anything you want. Wow. Great. I'm so glad that you say that. I would say the piece of, you know, pop culture or, you know, society, you know, that that has continued to impact me is the show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I can't say I've watched it, though. Let me tell you, it came out in maybe 1997, 98 on WB. So think like, you know, early 2000s teen show. But the main character, Buffy, uh, you know, every week is fighting a different vampire. You know, so far, like, what does this have to do with starting a company? But so many things that I'm I watched all of it during the pandemic and I continue to can't get her sort of out of my head and thinking about how she responds to these different scenarios. But the first thing is she's extremely strong. She fights vampires, but this like amazing strength. Great. But she's extremely selfless and always chooses the right thing, is really humble, often doesn't take credit when she saves the world at the end of an episode. And she does all of this with this amazing style, maybe style that isn't always in style by today's standards, but is by the early 2000s standards. And the things that that impacts me as a founder is continuing to remember that, you know, it's important to always continue to hone your craft and get stronger and and grow in, in whatever ways that you need to, whether it's in telling your story better, managing people better, how do you improve your own hiring processes, but at the same time, do it in a selfless, and humble way, like never imagine that you know everything or or that you should expect to take credit. And it's okay to do that always with a little bit of style and a little bit of flair. I think I really look up to people who who embrace sort of their inner personality and use that as a way of of leading other people. And Buffy encompasses that and and so much more. I have to say it's the first time I've heard someone mention that on the show, but that sounds really interesting. I'll have to check that out. You should. I highly recommend it. Nice. I feel like that's one of those shows when I was a little kid, it was always on TV, but I don't know if I ever ever watched it back then, but I can remember seeing that when I was like a 15-year-old kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I had to go back to it. I also didn't watch it when it came out. Nice. Well, let's switch gears and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So could we just start with a high-level overview of the problem you solve, who you serve, and, and really what the product does? 
Yeah. So companies today and, you know, companies we're talking about enterprises, all of them are adopting these Internet enabled technologies. I mentioned a few, you know, think things like security cameras, think things like HVAC systems, access controls, TVs. We've all probably went into a conference room before with one of those little panels that showed if the room was busy or not. All of that is getting connected to the Internet. And all of that falls outside of what is sort of known as traditional IT. If you've ever gone to a help desk to get your computer fixed or repurposed, you know, that's the bread and butter of what a lot of IT folks are used to is that type of technology. And a security camera is really different from the laptop that you work on every single day. And unfortunately, these the security cameras of the world and the HVAC systems of the world are all vulnerable as soon as they're getting connected to the network. And it's not necessarily the organization's fault, and it's not necessarily the the manufacturer's fault who's building them, but it is a reality that we live in where organizations are adopting these devices by the thousands to help with improving employee experiences, to be able to supplement staffing and, you know, in light of COVID and, and when we all had to work remotely. And it's unfortunate that they create these vulnerabilities that could cause downtime in their operations. They could have real safety impacts. It's something, you know, if an MRI machine goes down in a hospital, there can be some real patient outcomes. And so we've got, that's a little bit about the problem in hopefully Paint's picture. I've mentioned industries like hospitals, but it's anything foundational is where you would find this. So you will find a lot of these technologies and manufacturing environments. You'll find a lot of this sort of digital enabled technologies in oil and gas, or even in you know utilities or telecom, they're all using this new age of connectivity to make their processes more efficient. And we've got a platform that essentially helps these organizations, first of all, just understand what is on their network, because you can't protect what you don't know about. And, and we'll help them understand what's there. And we'll go a layer deeper and we'll provide all the context around this equipment. So the difference between a thermostat in the physician's lounge in a hospital compared to the thermostat in the ICU. And those are going to have two very different profiles. You can imagine if one goes down, the doctor's lunch gets a little warm. In the other, you can have some real patient outcomes. And so we provide all that context around how these devices operate. And then we've got a management platform that essentially helps to close the loop and remediate if something gets on the network that shouldn't be on the network, if there's some type of vulnerability that you know needs to get patched or get resolved or even be able to block things off, stop certain communications if we start to see bad things starting to spread throughout the network that could ultimately impact some of the more critical devices. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, take us back to May 2020. Is that when the company launched? Uh, you know, it is when the company launched, though Perigee started as early as 2018 when I left the NSA. So what was it like then in uh, in 2020, or at least that's what I saw on LinkedIn? That seems like a very interesting time to to launch. Is that when the product first went live? Yes. I look at 2020 as a couple of things happened in 2020. I started working on the company full time, whereas, you know, 2018 was still back at the napkin. You know, I'm part-time, I'm working full-time at the NSA or I'm or I'm full-time student incubating it. 2020 is when 
we raised our first dollar venture capital. It's when I hired our first employee, you know, got a product, demo together. There had never been a demo. Those are some of those big milestones that happened right around 2020. And what was it about this problem specifically that made you say, all right, I'm ready to start a company around it and, and I want to solve this problem? You know, I think it was... Someone once told me, if you're thinking about starting a company and you can see yourself doing anything else, you should go do that thing and not start a company. I was of the mind, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. It was your question along the lines of like, what made you want to start it? It was almost the absence of there was nothing else for me to do. Like this was the thing to do. There was nothing else I could see myself doing. And so without a question, it was obvious to get ready to leave and, and start the company. And talk to us about those first early paying customers. How did you manage to get people to give you a shot? Because that's something that all founders struggle with in the early days is how do you get customers to pay you money and, and give you a chance when you're just a new startup? So what do you think you got right and how were you able to attract those first paying customers? Absolutely. So I'll say the first paying customers, what they all have in common is before I even tried to sell anything, I did a lot of discovery and talked to a handful of folks that we knew were in this target persona. And in our situation, we our product, the buyer of it is a chief information security officer, a CISO. And before I sold anything, I just talked to somewhere in the ballpark of 50 to 100 of these CISOs across a handful of industries, a handful of different types of use cases. And as we started to get up further along in building the product, certain CISOs started to bubble up either because they clearly had really great insight and foresight into where the market was going or because what they needed and what we were building, there was a lot of synergy between those two things. And so our earliest customers came from those types of interactions, just the overtime development of a relationship from, hey, we came to you really early on when it was purely about discovery and now we're coming back to you and we actually think we've built something and like, what do you think? And could we do a trial of this? And and where could we go with this? That's one ballpark. And then um, I'll say the other big ballpark of um, first customers actually came through. We did this big competition through TechCrunch called TechCrunch Disrupt that helped put our name out there. And we got a bunch of inbound leads after doing this big competition. And I think the takeaway, a couple of takeaways from all of this in the TechCrunch Disrupt, sort of competition thing. I think it really helped. In some ways, some of our early conversations, I think we got a little friend zoned. People were like, oh, you're just the company I give feedback to. I'm never going to think about buying you. And, and I'm sure that's a real thing that we're not alone in. And so just putting ourselves out there as a real company that people could come and come to our landing page and ask for a demo and further along just helps change the tone from being friend zoned to being a real company in other people's eyes. So that's one takeaway is you know, maybe there's certain circles you could do with them. And then the other takeaway was, you know, there's going to be some real relationships that are going to be with you for the long haul. And there's opportunities to provide value to them and and they provide, you know, value back in terms of revenue. But with all of these, I think I was surprised by how much product we had to build to get any dollar through the door. I think I have a background where I went to business school and they sort of paint this picture that you can build a landing page and then ask for an LOI from that landing page. And that LOI is going to be six figures. And that's how you're going to get your first million. And that was not our experience. Like we we really had to come together with a product, explain how the tech worked, explain exactly how a trial on a POC was going to look and, and give people a little more certainty than just 
you know, here's a landing page and some messaging. And what do you think if we deliver on this value? And I'd love to also talk a little bit about your branding. So the other day I was on your website and I was just thinking, wow, this does not look like a normal cybersecurity website. Most of the times when you go on these websites, they're, you know, dark, scary colors and scary birds flying around. But you've taken a very different approach with branding. So could you talk us through your approach and how you kind of summarize your thesis when it comes to how you branded the company? Absolutely. So you've picked up on a lot of really important things about our space. Exactly right. And I think a lot of those colors, those darker colors, reflect a larger trend that we're hearing from clients they're kind of tired of, which is selling based on fear, you know, over-promising, under-delivering. And if you're not as familiar with cyber, cyber is a space that it's really hard to show value often because how do you show the value of something that didn't happen? If your product is the best, your company is never going to get hit by ransomware and it's never going to get hit by some threat actor. But ultimately, that's not great for, you know, if you're trying to prove an ROI. And so a lot of companies sell based on fear of like, what would you do if you got hit by ransomware? What would you do if you got hit with a $14 million, you know, ransom and you couldn't get any of your data? I think it's important to know the consequences. But when we work with clients, and this now feeds into our messaging, we really want to make cyber, we want to help the CISO help them position cyber as something that can overall grow the organization and and do everything better, not just be a cost center, not just sort of be an insurance policy, but also help them be able to accelerate their ability to adopt new technologies or their ability to make their operations more efficient. And so some of our branding and the way that it's counter to what other companies are doing is going back to, we fundamentally believe that cyber can be a thing that can provide value to a lot of different organizations Versus just, you know, mitigating risk in this one very, you know, specific area of the business. So that's, that's one aspect. And then more generally, when we, the other aspect around our technology is we think that cyber often is really expensive for organization. It comes with a lot of overhead. It's, it's something that can take a really long time to implement because we're dealing with the network and you've got to deal with like, you know, have you ever wanted to change your Verizon Fios, your Comcast policy? Probably not. Like you don't want, you never want to touch your router. You're scared to break anything. And Enter- big enterprises are no different. And the the lightweight, easy to use, friendly approach is is a reminder that not only are we a product that is coming in to provide value in, in more ways than just one, but we're one that's going to be easy to use, flexible, grow with you over time, and not you know, come with these hidden costs, these hidden frustrations that have plagued our industry for too long. Nice. I love that approach. I was at Black Hat last year, then I was at RSA this year, and I was walking around just thinking like, man, every company sounds the same. They all look the same. I don't know how anyone can rise above the noise, you know, following this approach because it's all the same. So I imagine for CISOs, it's, it's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Cyber is a is a notoriously noisy space. You have the opportunity from where you sit, I'm sure, to look across a lot of different industries. And maybe the reality is they're all noisy. I've only ever worked in cyber and I can speak to you. This one is certainly noisy. That's for sure. What else are you doing to rise above all that noise apart from brand and your, your general approach there? I think that one way you can rise above the noise you know, there's the macro ways around the brand. I think a lot of the other ways you can rise about the noise is through, you know, those micro ways, those interpersonal relationships. The thing that we we talk a lot about at Perigee is you know, how do we be how do we be honest about what we're building? How do we show people our value and give them the confidence that we're going to deliver on that value and and be very specific about that? 
I think those are the things, a lot of the noise can also be a way of describing a lot of the snake oil that can exist in cyber where people overpromise and and underdeliver and and we think about how our integrity is so important and people will continue to to turn to us if we continue to be honest and continue to be accurate about what we're doing and and so that's what is one way that we rise above the noise beyond just the marketing and more in just the day to day how do we make sure that we're memorable when people talk to us and we're memorable that you know they'll come back to us after a conversation and are you able to share any numbers that just demonstrate some of the growth and the traction that you're seeing today? We are not able to share any of the numbers. We are really excited by, you mentioned some of the ways that we're, you know, counter some of the con narratives you see in cyber. And we are really excited by the growth that we're seeing on our free trials on our website. So we can't share any specific numbers, but in terms of people just finding Perigee, coming to our website and signing up for a free trial... That's not a motion that you typically see in the cyber sector. And it's typically a pretty heavy, long implementation, you know, long cycle. And what I'm describing, you know, is in that, you know, that PLG motion. And we're really excited about what we're seeing there and something that we're continuing to, to monitor and, and nurture. And what about your market category? Is the category IoT, OT, security platform or, or what's the market category? There is a market category. I'll say we have the benefit of being a fast follower. If I'm using, you know, a Clay Christensen, you know, the god of strategy terminology, we're coming in as a as more or less a fast follower where the market has been, I've described it to someone in the past as it, it's in its preteen stage where it's been around for maybe six to 10 years. So there is a Gartner category. It's around IoT, OT security. Sometimes it's called asset management. It's been around for about six to 10 years, but it's about to grow really quickly. And I see as us being well positioned to be to get the benefit of, hey, you've already got some budget for this and you kind of know what we are and you kind of know how to how to buy us. But there's still a lot of green space here because, you know, things were only just getting defined. Budgets were only just coming together that we have the opportunity to go after still a lot of open field and a lot of places that have been untouched. That being said, I could see long term trying to shape the market in our own way. But that's there's actually some benefit to getting to coattail off of an existing market and eventually being able to shape it once you you've got some more dollars behind you. Because it's expensive to start a new market and it's expensive to, you know, to sell something that doesn't have a budget already already laid out for it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk a little bit about challenges. So I'm sure you've encountered a couple of challenges as you've brought this technology to market. But if we had to pick one challenge that you experienced and overcame, what would that challenge be and how'd you overcome it? You know, I think a lot of challenges can come back to people and making sure you have the right people. And so this one isn't, you know, a point in time, but more of a gradual thing around how do you thinking about how are we hiring for the right people and bringing together the right team. I remember when I was sitting in business school, you know, there was a class around hiring <laughs> and, you know, they presented a company and then they presented three different candidates and it was a discussion on which of these three candidates would you hire? And then you get into the real world and you realize it's nothing like that. Like I would love all day, to, you know, just to sort of sit around and pontificate around which of these three candidates should you hire. But what they oversimplified was getting to that point, you had to one, identify what it is that you're even trying to hire, when you're trying to hire. You have to write the right job description. You can capture that whatever this amorphous thing that you're trying to hire for. But then you have to find the right people and you have to set up the right processes around 
the interview process and make sure you're testing for the right things. Like you start to balloon this whole element of what I thought was just, oh, I have money. I need to hire people. Great. Like this is just a, you know, a black box. I can just put something in and something will come out is a much bigger thing in the end. And that's not necessarily an acute challenge, but it is a, a real learning that I've had to appreciate of just how much work goes into every single candidate and and every single process. And it gives me, honestly, a much more appreciation for even bigger companies that do this on a bigger scale. But in terms of how we've come about it, you know, it's never solved, but I do have some sense of, you know, for every new candidate, you know, this is my process for going about it. I'm certainly going to talk to somewhere between three to five people who have hired for that role before or that I see are experts in the space and just get a lay of the land. Like, what does this look like? What should I be thinking about? I then talk to probably three to five potential candidates and refine, you know, what it is that I heard from advisors and experts to what it is that I'm actually looking for. And once I've done sort of that process, then I'm ready to set up what is a formal interview process. And when I set up that formal interview process, you know, you you inform everyone what it is, you ask them if they're in or out, then you run with it and and you get to the end. But that's how I've avoided either A, starting something and never finishing it, which is not a good use of anyone's time, or or B, not starting it at all and not being able to make any any traction or any progress on it. And final question, since we're close on time here, let's zoom out into the future. So let's say maybe three to five years from today, what's that big picture vision that you're working on building? We're disrupting the IoT OT security space. And the big picture that we're building is we want to make it possible for every company to securely adopt these new digital technologies. And, and when we say every company, you know, we're not just talking about the hospitals of the world and the oil and gas, but it is seeping into so many different industries and companies of all sizes from, you know, the 100 person local community hospital, community college to the extremely large, you know, thousands of locations retail chain. And our grand vision is to be that platform that helps to centralize all of this information about their assets and and be that hub and intersection point for how are we managing them, how are we securing them, but ultimately how are we we also accelerating our company to be able to adopt the next wave of these technologies more quickly, more securely, more efficiently. Amazing. I love it. All right, Molly, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute, where should they go? LinkedIn is the best place to find me where I'm, I'm most active with Perigee Insights, Thoughts, and sharing information about us. Well, Molly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about what you're building and share some of those lessons that you've learned along the way. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I know our audience is going to as well. So thanks so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Brett. Really appreciate it as well. All right. Take care. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. 